Kia ora, you're listening to season 2.5 of PhD Unpacked, which is centred on love. My name is John Harvey Gasabi, and I am the host of this Coalesce Produced mini-series. I love love, but recently I've realised that we don't give a whole lot of weight to conversations about romantic love. So I've interviewed three different academics who study love to talk to me about why it's important and why we should be having more critical conversations about it. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Matt Hammond about seeking support in romantic relationships and whether people in long-term relationships get more similar over time. I don't want to butcher anyone's introductions, so we're going to go ahead and let Matt tell us a bit more about himself. So can you tell us a bit about who you are, what you research, what your expertise are? Oh, you've, d- you've done most of it. You've done what I do in, in <laughs> most of my life already. Pākehā, New Zealander. Uh, I originally came from Auckland. I went overseas for a little bit, went to the States, did a postdoc over there, came back and was stoked to get a job in Wellington and have been lecturing here uh, for seven years, question mark, now. <laughs> and uh, the most fun thing I do in my job is uh, it varies from day to day, which is, I think, the best thing about being a lecturer is one day I'll get up and I'll be doing lecturing in front of a huge classroom full of people. The next day I'll be sitting down and, and doing research, figuring out things about psychology. Uh, my research covers a whole broad range of social psychology, which is focused on how people think, feel and behave, especially around other people. And that's why my speci- my specialty is around romantic relationship processes and more generally how we behave in all of our close relationships between friends, family members, uh, and sometimes work colleagues. I have, a, I have a question. Do you refer to yourself as doctor? Uh, never. I've, I didn't go for, <laughs> um, for some people that's important, and I definitely think they should, but I go by Matt for, for the most part. But it would be weird if someone walked up to me and said, Mr. Hammond, and I'm like, hang on, what, are you, what game are you playing? <laughs> Mr. Hammond is very, like, high school teacher. Yeah. Like, that's what, yeah. There's a bit of that vibe in it. <laughs> okay, we'll go with Matt. We'll go with Matt. Um, so one thing that I'm curious to start off with is psych is a branch of science. Um, and so what I'm really curious about is what is the science behind love so what from scientifically from a scientific perspective what is the science behind love that's one of the most difficult questions in the whole world is i mean i guess that's a difficult question in everyday life right is if you were asked by someone what is love you just kind of walk away from them right there's no way to answer (laughs) that Uh, scientifically it's it's pretty similar uh there is a lot of really good theories about love uh but uh, we run into a lot of problems early on with English because in English you love your parents and you love your partner and you love pizza. It's the same word. It's the same word, but it's very different. And like <laughs> loving pizza and loving your partner and loving your parents are completely different things, right? Uh, so there's a little bit of murkiness there about how we can study love. And so the investigation of love has taken all of those amazing opportunities and figured out, all right, what happens when we just ask people about love? What do they say? And so there is a, a huge field about the way that we use the words and in different languages, the completely different words that come out for uh, te quiero in, in Spanish, mm. like how much you 
need someone, right? <laughs> there is a completely different meaning behind it. Isn't that tensity behind it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and in English, we have similar things. We will, we will play around with, do you love them or are you in love with them? Yep. Or are you like in love with them? There are different ways that we play that same game. Uh, in, in some research, I think, which is probably the, the strongest theory on love, if you were trying to nail down what is love, uh, it's Garth Fletcher's idea, which comes from evolutionary science, and it comes at it from a little bit of a weird angle, which is think about what happens when you're hungry. When you're hungry, right? Mm-hmm. Doesn't food look better and, and taste so, better? Yeah. So there's a thing that's been evolved in us to get hungry when we need food, and when we need water, we get thirsty. Now, love is the thing that draws us towards people, towards relationships. So the thing that propels us towards other people, even though sometimes it's not nice or it's difficult, the thing that says, you know what, uh, if you're a parent and you have to get up in the middle of the night for that for the child for a hundred night in a row, the thing that propels you to do that, that's love. So one of the ideas around love is it's a, a motivational state, like hunger, like thirst, but one that uh, fulfills the need for belonging, the need for connection with people. So it's which, a survival yeah. mechanism or a survival urge? Yeah, that's a great way of thinking about it. Imagine if human beings weren't interested in other people and we all just wandered around by ourselves. We'd be extinct pretty quickly. Yeah. And and that's kind of the idea of, of where love comes from. And in, in, in most species that have similar neurochemicals to us when they experience well, we don't know what they experience, but uh, for animals that have oxytocin receptors in their brains, for example, which is one of the bonding neurotransmitters that humans have as well, those species are the ones that bond and uh, form family units uh, or gangs. <laughs> if you've seen gangs of birds and <laughs> dolphins where they work together, elephants, all of those are using the same neurochemicals as human beings use. And all of those is about survival as part of a group because alone we're a lot less useful and together we can uh, benefit from one another we can benefit from diversity humans are very good at diversity and expanding across the world by being very flexible with our environments and a lot of that I think comes down to we can rely on one another I can be good at one thing and you can be good at another thing and together we're good at both things Mm. so love is sort of I guess evolution's way of creating community or yeah. creating that togetherness. If you want to give evolution this mystical force <laughs> of a thing that tried to do something. Yeah. In, in science, we talk about it uh, kind of in, in the reverse of the things that, that have evolved. Evolution is uh, a description of a process that has already happened. Mm. Uh, there wasn't anything trying to make us fall in love. It's just the people who survived are the ones who fell in love. And yeah. so we keep falling in love. That's really nice. That's really beautiful. So if that's if that's the science or the um, kind of theories behind how love has evolved and why love has sort of been selected um, to continue to use like an evolutionary, I think that's me, my year 12 biology coming through. Sounds good. Um, then what, how would you compare that to what you understand of the realities of love and of how we actually today experience love? If science has got it right, then I have described the realities of love. I'd hope that that the science isn't too far from the realities, but 
science can take that very large-scale view of thinking about love across 500,000 years from when we were ape things wandering <laughs> around to now homo sapiens. So uh, the realities of, of, of love is we're not too concerned about uh, survival as a group as we wander around, uh, and the experience of love for a particular individual is highly contextual of, of what's happening for them. And I think one of the things that social psychology does really well is it says there isn't going to be a standard rule for how love is and how it's experienced in the real world. It's entirely going to depend on what's going on in your life. Because people do say that being in love with someone, falling in love with someone, and having them fall in love with them back is the best moment of their life or... Uh, finding their love for a child and, and realizing that's what's happening is the best moment of their life. And equally, breaking up with someone, and especially breaking up with someone who you've been with, with for years or decades, people describe as the worst moment of their life. So love is probably the extremes. If, if love is happening, then something in the extremes is happening in terms of how happy or how sad they are. That was um, one of the people that I interviewed out on Cuba Street when we were just asking people questions about love um, was this man who was saying that he realised what love was, um, like you were talking about, when he had a child and being able to contextualise love with what he felt for his child and what him and his child and his partner felt for each other, that that was, that was kind of like where the light bulb moment went off when he was like, no, this, this is love. So Yeah. And, and the, the cliche answer, right, is if you know, you know, and if you don't know, then you don't know. And, and there is a little bit of truth to that, I think. There is there is so much that happens biologically in your brain when you fall in love. There are just a dump of about eight different neurotransmitters. If you're curious about it, look up Helen Fisher's biological theory. It's a, like there's a TED talk and everything. And uh, it is so many neurochemicals that are happening when you fall in love that... Uh, that, that sensation of being completely overwhelmed, that you're now obsessed with someone, that you're focused and you're, the only thing you can think about, staying awake at night, not eating, not sleeping, just thinking about this person, is, it is uh, entirely shared across a lot of people because there is something that is in our brains that mm -hmm. just clicks sometimes and we go, boom, that's the person. Okay, so like if 16-year-old me who was very obsessive about the boys that she had crushes on, like that is... Are you validating that? Are you scientifically saying that this is like a common experience? Yeah, sure. Why yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's totally a common experience. Okay, amazing. Because I feel like sometimes we can definitely, particularly when you're young and, you know, people are telling you that you've got all these hormones running around, that you don't really know how you feel, um, that you're being dramatic is a big one. Um, so it's kind of, it's, it's cool to hear that that is not an outlier and that that is kind of justified by all of these things whirring around in your brain. Those hormones are the feelings. So in like, all, all we have in our brains is neurotransmitters. That's all we are. If we get really philosophical and weird about it, we, we are just electrical signals running around and, and a little fleshy thing in our heads. Uh, so when we're talking about those electrical signals and those neurochemicals, we experience those as as feelings, as motivations. And so, yeah, it, it can't just be the hormones unless you're describing all of human existence, which is just hormones. <laughs> so um, when I was hmm, researching stalking, maybe, 
I'm going to say academically, when I was academically stalking you, um, because I was thinking about this and I was like, well, I guess when you normally stalk someone, you kind of like go through their Instagram, go through years of their posts. And I was doing that with like with your research on like the university website. But I was actually stalking you. I was going through all of this different research that you'd done, um, all of these studies that you'd conducted. Um, one of the ones that definitely stood out to me was the study you did about support and support seeking and support receiving. And the reason I found it really interesting was because I guess when I think about support and relationships, as I guess most people do, you kind of do put that emphasis on the person that's giving you what you need and whether or not they're providing you with what you need and how good of a job they've done. Um, But your research was looking at the other person and whether or not they're asking for support in, I guess, the most effective way in, in their role in that relationship. So could you tell me a bit more about that study? That is exactly where it came from. The, the motivation was when most people think about support, if you think about uh, in your head uh, the, what you do in a movie scene of someone supporting someone else, there's so much focus on the person who's giving the hug or giving the wise words of advice. And, and that's for sure important, but it's not how support normally starts. It doesn't start with a hug and then you're crying afterwards. It starts with a person crying and then asking for a hug. And it was really surprising to Brian Don, who led that work, and I, that there wasn't that much research on the person seeking support and what kinds of decisions they make and how they seek support and what determines how we seek support in our relationships. So that was the that was the seed of that study. So when we talk about support seeking and receiving within a relationship, particularly a romantic relationship, how is that different to, say, a familial relationship or a platonic relationship? Is that different? Is it the same mechanisms, essentially? or We hope so. <laughs> In science, you never know, but I think so. Across a lot of relationship research, you can pretty much swap in and out uh, parents and children siblings, partners, close friends, sometimes even humans and pets. Uh, there are a lot of similarities in our behaviours and and support seeking is probably one of those. Uh, in relationships, that's a little bit closer to friends because there's a bit more equal power dynamic than with mm-hmm. parents and children. So parents tend to not seek support from their children. In fact, prefer to resist seeking support from their children <laughs> often because of that power dynamic. Um, so in in this work, it was focused on romantic relationships, but it's probably quite close to how best friends would support one another as well. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense, the power dynamic thing. Um, and so the when I was going through the research, it identified, I think you identified four different types of support. There was tangible, informational emotional and negative. Um, Could you talk to me a bit about what those mean? Yeah. These are are rough categories we use. They're not fully descriptive of all the different ways of seeking support and the the types of support we want. But uh, in science, it's quite useful often to to roughly chop up these ideas. So uh, if you think about things in categories, tangible support is actually doing something for someone. So mm-hmm. if someone goes, oh, man, the house is messy, you can clean the house. Uh, 
informational support is where you provide information without physically doing something. So if someone says, oh, my house is messy, and you say, oh, if you vacuum over there and you tidy up those books, <laughs> it'll actually look really clean and you don't need to do much more work. Emotional support is where you're expressing empathy and care. So if someone says, ah, the house is messy, and you say, I still love you anyway, it's going to be okay. And negative support is a tricky one to get your head around because uh, it sounds like it's an oxymoron. Yeah. And it's like, how, what, what is negative support? Uh, so negative support isn't actually supportive, and, but negative support describes a category of behaviours that are negative behaviours that specifically come out in support contexts and you don't really see them anywhere else. So, for example, minimising a problem is a really common negative support behaviour where you say, ah, oh, my house is messy, and, you say, and someone says... Oh, it doesn't look that bad. Doesn't matter. Yeah. What are you worried about? Right. And it's it's kind of a, it's like it's not supportive. People don't like it. <laughs> but you only really see that kind of uh, uh, negative support behavior come out in the support context. So we use negative support for that reason. But there are a few other things that fall under that category. Blaming someone. I'm like, ah, oh, my house is messy. Why did you let it get so messy that you should have cleaned it a week ago? So does that still count as a type of support? It. Mm, wow. What is support? <laughs> We're going to get philosophical <laughs> on it. It counts as a behaviour that comes out in support contexts, mm. and uh, and we're not going to judge if some people love that. If some people say, you know what, when I'm asking for support, what I really want someone to tell me is, doesn't matter. Yeah. We know that on average, that's not the case. People don't like it. But we're not going to rule out that once in a while, maybe there's there's a particular problem or a particular thing that happens, and the best thing for someone to hear is someone to go, you know what, you're worrying about nothing that, that doesn't matter at all. Stop worrying. Yeah. Maybe that works. Because that kind of, I mean, that kind of reminds me of um, very trendy topic love languages, uh, which people, I feel like a lot of particularly young people are really interested in figuring out what their love language is and what other people's love languages are. Um, and it kind of reminds me of that if, like, tangible support was acts of service and if... Um, informational support or emotional support was like words of affirmation it's kind of like there are these different things and there's no real textbook definition for like what is best like I guess on paper to me tangible support probably sounds best because someone's doing something about the problem but that's not necessarily going to be what every single person wants to hear like it's very contextual to them yeah imagine if you're doing homework and you ask for support with your homework and someone goes <laughs> oh I'll just did it I'll just take it away and do it for you and you're never learning. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're, the next time you get home, you'll be like, well, I have, to, I have to go back to that person to get them to do my homework now because I, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, uh, you're heading on a, a super important point in the support literature, which we talk about in the paper, which is the idea of responsiveness and that there isn't ever going to be one type of support that's always good or always bad. The best kind of support will be responsive, which is to say, what does that person need? Does that person want a hug right now? Does that person want me to listen? Does that person really desperately need advice? And and hugging a person who wants advice is going to be bad and giving a person advice when they want a hug is going to be bad yeah. and giving a person who wants a hug a hug is going to be really good. So that's also dependent on my understanding of the person. Yeah. So I yeah. probably give, sounds logical, but I can give better support to someone who I understand better and whose needs I can sort of gauge better. Well, that's exactly right, which is why uh, the most important support figures in people's lives tend to be their partners, their best friends, and their family. Mm. And it's, it's not an accident. And it's yeah. not because we're around them the most. It's because 
we are hopefully used to seeking support from them. We know what kind of support we'll get from them and they know what kind of support we want. So I guess on the flip side of that, if you're in a context, particularly looking at the support seeker, where for whatever reason they are needing support from someone that doesn't know them well, that doesn't understand their needs, um, was there anything you found in the study about how to ask support when you kind of have to really articulate your needs when the other person isn't really picking up on what you need because they just don't know you like that? Yeah, that's a really cool question. We couldn't get at that in the study because the study started off by looking at people who are already in relationships and mm. uh, saying, yep, I want to participate in your study and we're in a relationship. <laughs> what we did look at differences in the study that gets at your question is differences in people's autonomous motivation to be in their relationships which is a uh, super scientifically, psychologically jargony way to talk about a, a concept. So, so autonomous motivation to be in a relationship, it's really talking about something that everyone will talk about, which is why are you in a relationship? What is it for? Is a relationship for because you need to be around someone to clean, clean up and give you hugs? Yeah. That would be uh, not a very autonomous reason to be in a relationship is to, to effectively have someone who cleans up after you. An autonomous reason to be in a relationship is because with that person, you are building a better sense of yourself. You feel yourself growing and expanding together. You support one another's goals and you have this kind of mutual like trajectory in life. So that would be a super autonomous reason to be in a yeah. relationship. How much does it fit with your intrinsic needs? So in the study, we were looking at, hey, that's probably a pretty important difference for the ways that people are going to seek support is are they in their relationships because they feel like they have to be there, they're stuck there, or it's just a, a service-style relationship, or are they this person who's like, no, we're building together and we're going to be this amazing yeah. um, amazing couple who are <laughs> reaching all of our goals together. And we found that was a really important predictor of how people sought support. When people felt like they were guilted into their relationships or stuck in their relationships, they tended to seek support in a really indirect way, which is going to a partner and not laying out what they needed, which would be really helpful to be mm. responsive, <laughs> but instead, uh, like, indirectly hinting at what they wanted. Or so maybe they were expressing a lot of anger at someone at work and just getting really mad at, at, at their boss. Yeah. But what they wanted was someone to be caring and affectionate and, and hug to walk, right? Because yeah. you're like, but they have this emotional need, but what they're expressing is something that is not that conducive to getting a hug as someone yelling about a boss they had. So on the flip side, people who are in their relationships for super autonomous reasons, they tended to ask support much more directly, which is quite vulnerable, walking up to someone and saying, hey, I'm feeling super stressed and scared right now, and what I need from you is I need you, you to sit down and, and tell me it's going to be okay and, and we're all going to be all right. And that's putting a lot on the line because yeah. you really need that other person to say, yeah, okay, that, yeah, let's do that. Yeah, not, I don't have time right now. <laughs> yeah. What, touching what you said before, is there is there a, a right reason to want to be in a relationship? Like you talk about reasons that aren't very autonomous and reasons that are quite autonomous. Is there, yeah, is there a right reason? I'd say it's an important way that different relationships are different. Mm -hmm. and And going back or rewinding a bit, Diversity in human experience is really important. And I suspect different kinds of relationships need to have different levels of autonomous motivation. So 
if you're with work colleagues, for example, some of those relationships are going to be very low in autonomy. They're, they're not relationships you have because you want them. Mm. They're relationships you have because you have to work with this person because they have that job and you have your job and you've got to do your job. And I think in that mode, it's probably pretty good and it probably produces a really important set of behaviours where you're not being particularly emotional with one another and you're yep. being task-directed and and you're not relying on each other when, you, when you're when you sad. Don't you probably don't rely on your colleagues for emotional it, Yeah, it, it probably ruins work dynamics, right? It's probably too much. Uh, so that's a situation where low autonomous motivation would be quite beneficial. And on the flip side, in a romantic relationship, it's, un, it's unlikely that that's going to be a, a useful dynamic. Mm. Uh, so I'm not going to say it's right or wrong, and it's definitely not for me to judge. <laughs> Uh, but according to the research, uh, the more autonomously motivated people are in their relationships, the happier they tend to be in those relationships, the longer those relationships tend to last. But it's not the only thing that's important. And if you're freaking out, uh, it changes. It's not something you're stuck with. So, for example, people can feel guilted to be in a relationship in some at some points, but that's not going to be permanent forever. Often will happen when our partner is sick. Is it's, it's people go oh I'm I'm feeling like I have to be supportive and I have to be here out of like out of pity or empathy or or out of like oh it'd be so bad if I brought up a fight right now so I'm just going to avoid that even though I'm mad so yeah there are different times and places where it's it's probably good to to have a little bit of like oh maybe I shouldn't I shouldn't raise my voice yeah. um when you did the study did you identify any trends or patterns in terms of how like particular people ask for support i think that question broke my brain a bit can you ask that again (laughs) what what are you trying to get at there so i guess um when you look at the range of people that participated in the study did you find that a certain type of person um was seeking support in a certain type of way like were there any patterns that you saw I think the the main pattern was the one I talked about before, where the more autonomous people were, the more directly they tended to seek support. Mm. So the more upfront and and vulnerable they were when they were needing support with another person. Uh, beyond that, support behaviours themselves were pretty varied. There are lots okay. of different ways you can seek support directly or indirectly. Like you could sit someone down and just like almost like a list saying, <laughs> here are my problems, here's what I need and I'll deliver, please. Uh, but there are other more, there are other ways you could seek support. Uh, like crying uh, is uh, like, is a really obvious signal. and, and Obvious but indirect way of seeking uh, support? Depends on how you cry. So uh, crying with open arms <laughs> and, and asking for a hug is, is a really obvious support seeking signal because mm. of the open arms bit yeah but, but walking to your room and crying mm. do they want to be alone yeah do they want me to come and comfort them do they want a, a tea what, what's going on so yeah uh by itself crying can can carry those different connotations for sure but there's not like a i mean I, i'm not sure the age range that participated but there wasn't like a People that are older tend to seek support in a more direct way, or there wasn't like a gender difference or anything? Oh, that's a cool question. So uh, we don't have the biggest range to be able to test those kinds mm. of ideas convincingly. The best research tends to be uh, meta-analyses that take lots of studies like our one study and puts them all together to look at differences across age and gender. 
There definitely are across age, and I wouldn't be able to tell you off the top of my head. Uh, gender, which is an area of mine, is so complicated it's an entirely another podcast. Uh, <laughs> in in general, the fun the fun patterns around gender tend to be that people tend to prefer seeking support from women, and there's a lot in our socialization from early on and a lot in the gendered stereotypes about women being particularly effective support providers yeah. uh, and some evidence to suggest that women are more empathetic but it's not something that is given to you when, <laughs> when you are a woman I'm like, Here, now you're good at this uh, it is accounted for by the different ways that people are brought up from when they're yeah. children to think about other people's feelings and and pay attention to other people's emotions around them. So we've talked about the different ways that people can give support, or the different types of support that there are. Is there sort of a basic, effective way that everyone can ask for support? Like, is there a, is there a textbook good way to do it? I'm going to give more lecture answers, and it always, it always depends on the situation and the person. In general, more direct ways tend to be more beneficial for the support provider, but seeking support in very direct ways puts that support seeker in a more vulnerable position and requires a lot more effort and work from them. Um, slamming, slamming your door and walking into your room and, and hiding under the sheets is quite a nice feeling, and, and mm. but it's not a very good way to communicate. <laughs> so all of these have costs and benefits, I think. And uh, so the more direct and, and communicative people are, the better a chance that someone else is to be responsive to them. Um, but it, definitely not at the cost of you telling them off later saying, well, I was, I did support seeking perfectly. I was super direct and you still <laughs> failed. Then if you're, if you're approaching it like that, which actually would be a very low autonomy yeah. <laughs> motivation in a relationship of like treating a relationship like you have to play a game or win things or do mm, things perfectly. That, that's low autonomy motivation. Uh, yeah. So if you, if you had that in your mind when you're seeking support directly, I think you probably might ruin all of the good that comes from it. But in general, I think as if you can give a, a thing that's close to a rule in relationship science would be that direct things are more beneficial than indirect things. Mm. So kind of trying to do, I guess, 50-50 of the work both ways. So if you give the other person an idea of what you want, the other person can give you what you want as opposed to kind of all being on one person or the other, trying to even out that emotional labour. Yeah, that sounds good to me. Okay. Um, okay, so I have I have some rapid-fire questions because um, I thought it would be fun to break up the segment. Um, so I have 10 questions for you. They're very simple and straightforward, and you're going to give me a yes or a no, and it's going to be excellent. All right, we'll see about that. I am a lecturer. I'm very <laughs> bad at yes or no. You can already tell. <laughs> All right. Question number one, Matt, do you believe in love at first sight? Uh, and see, I'm not going to give you a yes or no. Um, we don't know. We just don't know. Some people say it happens and some people say there's there's no way it happens. Uh, do I believe in it? I can't believe in it until I see the data on it. I'm so boring. What a boring scientist That's answer. A very scientist answer. Yeah, I can't, I can't just believe something. I've got to okay. know. I do want to know, though. Good question. Okay. I think, like, for me, I feel like I believe in lust at first sight. Like, I understand <laughs> that. 
but I feel like love is so complicated that I'm like, I just don't know if that, don't know if that can happen. Um, anyway, okay, next question, yes, yes or no. Is it okay to date your friend's ex? No, contextual. It's so contextual. Yeah. Yes, fine, <laughs> fine, yes, but certain things have to happen. <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay. Valentine's Day? No. Blind dates? Yes. Uh, marriage proposals in public? No. That's entirely personal. That is not scientific. <laughs> We're running out of scientific answers now. <laughs> No, these are, these are just you personally as a human oh, being. Who it's very difficult love. to separate the, <laughs> the the human being from the science. Um, going to bed angry at your partner? No. Okay. Uh, double dates? Yeah, that's an air. I'm giving that an, an air, E-H-air. Um, can you be in love with more than one person at once? Yes. Breaking up with someone not in person? No. And lastly, can you ever move out of the friend zone? Yes. But the entire concept... I'm, I'm going to... I can't just give a yes no, The entire concept of friend zone is weirdly sexist and I don't know the connotations it of, like, people totally tricking is. people into being friends. They're just friends. If you're friends, then you're friends. And if you're not friends, then you're not friends. And there isn't a zone you get put in. <laughs> it's such a silly idea. Um, You said... You said... Uh, going to be angry at your partner, you said no. Oh, now you want more information than yeah, yes or no. I, no, no, that's, I'm, I'm invested. I'm invested. Okay, talk me through it. Why? Uh, in general, if there is anger, negativity, frustration, then it should be worked on. And uh, if you are leaving or taking a break, uh, that's that can be a good thing, but mm. probably not leave and take a break and then go to bed angry because if you're angry you're not going to sleep you're just going to sit there being angry right i mean that turns into a yes if both people can go to bed and sleep instantly have a nice yeah, sleep and then you, get up the yeah. next morning and resolve that problem mm -hmm. but i don't think that happens i don't think you go to bed and just sleep hypothetically if you live in if you don't live together you have a partner you don't live together so it's not like you're going to have to go to bed angry in the same bed <laughs> Does that change the answer? If you can both sleep, in, But I think you'd sit there awake in bed just being angry and, and yelling them in your head rather than yelling at them out loud. And that so, it's so eventually just the same thing, except you get much worse sleep, right? So I think, yeah, totally take a break and, and take time to relax. Mm -hmm. But it, as long as there's a break and relaxing and yeah. if you're angry in bed, then you're just angry in bed. I hear you. I don't know if I agree, but I hear you. <laughs> I get. I think I'm on. I'm on like team. Take a break because I think sometimes when you put so much pressure on needing to resolve something in that moment, like that can bring out some really ugly things in people. That's like that's just like my opinion. But I feel like I feel like as long as you can leave the conflict with like an understanding of we will revisit this tomorrow and like me walking away angry doesn't mean I'm throwing this relationship away, then I feel like you can go to bed angry and like wake up the next morning. I don't know. It doesn't sound that angry. If, if you're 
<laughs> you're fully expressing to someone, by the way, me being angry doesn't mean I love you any less and, I, and we're still okay. And you think people can't do that when they're angry? I, I think if they're doing that, then I don't think they're angry. I think they can be expressing anger, but yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I wouldn't class someone being like, you know, I love you. I don't class it as someone being angry. <sighs> Interesting. Interesting. Okay, okay. I accept. I accept your answer. So the other piece of research that you did that I was really interested in was the study on the development of long-term relationships and how people in long-term relationships, whether or not they do or don't become similar to each other over time. Um, And I was really interested in what you found and how that kind of went against what I think most people would presume to be true. Um, So can you talk to me a bit about like the motivation behind that study? Was it to potentially disprove people's presumptions? No, we thought the same thing. We thought the same thing. Everyone thought that when you're in a long-term relationship with someone, over time, you become more similar. You merge into the same person. You lose all of your unique interests and things that make you interesting, and you just become the same person. You become now, being, a we thing. You become a we. No, that's very facetious. But there was, there was a general idea in psychology that across time, what we're doing with someone, we're living with them, we're having the same experiences. So if you were to measure people's beliefs, like their beliefs about climate change or their political attitudes or their attitudes about gender and relationships and how happy they are in their relationships, surely, surely those things merge together over time. So we started that study testing that out. We were actually really interested in the idea that we know people are similar in their relationships, but we don't know if they start similar Mm. or if they become more similar over time. So maybe opposites attract and then eventually you reach a point where you're the same person. Uh, So for a while, research has known that opposites don't attract, that overwhelmingly similarity attracts. But uh, when you see people who are similar in a relationship, like if you know friends of yours who have been together for ages and you're like, I could hang out with either one of you and it's just as good as both of you. It doesn't matter which one to hang out with. Uh, Yeah. Does that happen because... They started like that. They were like, you're like me. Let's hang out together for the rest of our lives. Or did they just turn into the same person? So we started that study expecting people to become more similar across time. And this is a a large study in New Zealand called the New Zealand Attitudes and Values Survey. It's run by Chris Sibley up in Auckland, along with a huge team of people. So this is a big data set. It had hundreds of couples and it has hundreds of couples where we've measured things that they believe over years. So we can see... If you're in the same couple, do you start believing something closer to the other person over time? Turns out that people's beliefs change. Yeah. For example, on average, we tend to believe more in climate change now than we have in the past. But that change has got nothing to do with how your partner changes. Couples are just changing all over the place, <laughs> in completely regardless of what the, the other person. Each other. Pretty much for the for the most part, that's the the takeaway from that research is like people just change independently. Now, the caveat is they might think that they're similar. They might think they're changing. We don't know what they're thinking. We know what their beliefs were, mm-hmm. but we don't know what they think their partner's beliefs were. So those changes might still be them thinking they're becoming more similar. But we know from what they've said about what they believe, they are definitely not, on average, becoming more similar. So you talked about opposites not attracting. 
as as science as an entity believes. Yeah. <laughs> is that is that where you believe as well? Yeah. Oh, absolutely for sure. It's uh, it's a, a bit of a silly concept at a certain point because what is an opposite of a human being? <laughs> like, you do have to take some some generous steps to define what it means to be opposite to someone. Uh, but for the most part, when you look at uh, people who get together, they tend to get together with people who are a similar age, from a similar place, who live in a similar place, who are roughly uh, a similar profession. Um, and so for the most part, <laughs> people are quite similar. But there are a lot of things that we discount. Yeah. You go, oh, if you grew up in New Zealand and I'm from New Zealand, that doesn't count as us being similar because look around us. Yeah. Everyone grew up in New Zealand. That's not a thing that we're similar on. Uh, but you'd know it if you went home and you'd be like, oh, these people are different. So you're looking at similarities in like a very large global context, not within the context that these people already exist in? I, I think that's how when people are talking about opposite detracting, that's the, one of the things that I think is biasing them is they, there are so many things they're discounting when they yeah. go through that and what they're noticing is all the ways that their partners are around. They're like, oh, my partner likes rock climbing and I like surfing. And that one of them's with earth and the other one's with water. That's so opposite. But from the outside, you're like, you're both sporty, active yeah. people. You're the same, right? So there are different ways that you could think about what makes someone similar or different. For all of the things that we tend to measure in science, like uh, the, the big predictors of relationships, like how physically attractive people are, how much they like fun and adventure, how kind and warm and empathetic they are, people tend to be really similar on those traits. So can you can you scientifically measure physical attraction? Like I understand there's the whole like the the, the face the facial symmetry thing and, and I get that, but how do you scientifically measure whether like two people are both sixes out of ten, so they might You just you just described it. What better way to measure physical attractiveness than the way that everyone describes physical attractiveness? We say this person over here one to ten scale, what do you think? And you can ask a lot of people, and people are really consistent. So you can measure how much everyone in general thinks they're attractive, but you can also look at the variability, because it's not that everyone gets the same number, just it averages to something really consistent. You can say, all right, this person gave them a ten, <laughs> and you're like, all right, they're going to be more attracted. So if you give someone a ten, then it's really likely that you'll be romantically interested in them, but if everyone gives them a 10, it's also really likely you'll be romantically interested in them. So the right. science can separate out like your personal attraction as well as we also like people who are generally attractive to everyone Just else. Subjectively, okay. Subjectively, according to everyone? Which yeah. Is objective? Question mark. So I'm specifically curious about how people didn't become more aligned with each other when it comes to their politics. So I'm wondering, is that because they were already quite similar to begin with? Yeah, people are more similar to their partners in their political views to begin with. So the way we kind of talk about similarity is if you were to compare your political views to your partner relative to your political views with a random person in New Zealand, you're much more similar with your partner on average than just a random person. But that similarity isn't super strong. So... Uh, if people love correlation coefficients, uh, <laughs> a correlation of around 0.3 uh, is is a moderate correlate. There is a similarity in general, but there's a lot of room to move, and they are by no means exactly the same. And so we fully expected people to become more similar across time. So they didn't. 
Uh, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of conversations. I guess that's one of the main rules, right? Like if you go home for a, a holiday, don't talk about politics. At that with minute. that one uncle that you have. Yeah. Yeah. These are people you've grown up with and you're definitely not becoming more similar to them, right? Yeah. So how important was it to the people in the study, if you do know, how important was it to them that they had similar sociopolitical views to each other? Great question. I, the answer is I don't know. I suspect people would say it's quite important to, to share similar sociopolitical views. But given everyone's in, in New Zealand and we probably have a vaguely New Zealand political climate, being more conservative or liberal in New Zealand, you're probably more similar still very in the to other people in New Zealand, <laughs> right? If you were going to like Southeast Asia or the United States or Africa, all of those words, you're like, oh, I'm, I'm probably just more New Zealandy in my politics, yeah. is what most people would say, right? So there is a level of similarity there where I think people have enough to get along with. Uh, and then as long as you're not digging in too deep, I think most people don't really think about it that much. In the study, we found that although on average across time, people didn't become more similar in their sociopolitical views, there was a blip where they got a little bit more similar to each other in a single year. And and we were a little bit sneaky in our interpretation because we went, actually, the year where people got a little bit similar, so not a trajectory where they became more similar consistently, but one year where they're a, a bit more similar than normal was an election year. And we thought that probably meant that that means that people are probably talking about politics. Yeah. Maybe if you're talking about politics with a close partner, that's the first time you're actually realising what their views are and you probably change a bit to be a little bit more like them. Okay, because you're sitting at the dinner table sort of articulating why you feel the way you feel and the other person is doing that back and you're kind of seeing that reasoning. With yeah, and, so, and you do change your mind a bit, I think. And so it suggests to me that it is important that people hold similar political views to their partner, but most of the time... They're probably just assuming they do and not even questioning it. They're probably, yeah, my partner thinks the same as me, right? Yeah. I mean, and you would probably do the same if you thought about close people in your life. You'd just say, yeah, they, they hold the same views as me, right? See, I find it so interesting because, so I also went to to Hedingalaka, Victoria, University of Wellington, and I found that, like a lot of people, university was kind of the first time that I had been politically awakened and I was you know it was the first time that I was old enough to vote and so I had the ability to engage in democracy and so I cared more and I learned more and I was on around other people that cared as well um and there was so many young people myself included who really really cared whether or not they were politically aligned with the people that they were romantically associated with like I've seen many a tinder profile where it was so obvious who this person voted for what their socio-political beliefs were. And it was kind of a way of weeding people out, of like, if you don't see eye to eye with me on this, this is like, this is a non-starter. So I find it really interesting that, I mean, that in other cases, people do very much so assume that if we're aligned and if this relationship works, and of course we kind of believe the same thing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a lot easier to, to say no on Tinder than it is 16 years into a relationship to be like, actually, you know what? I don't like who you voted for, so see you later. <laughs> it, is, it is a dinner table at, at a family holiday kind of situation where you're like, I guess this is just not going to be a topic that I bring up again. So there's a sentence from the conclusion 
of your study. I'm going to quote here, if, if you'll let me. Um, I'm going to read out this sentence, and I'm just hoping that you can explain what it means. So the sentence is, These findings are consistent with the theory that people converge with perceptions of their partner rather than converging towards the same understanding of themselves and the world. So what does that mean? Does that mean that I think, like you said, that I think I'm getting more similar to you, but that's purely my perception of you and not actually who you are? Yeah, we're going we're gonna to get a little metaphysical, philosophical for a bit, is that in our lives, what do we think about the people around us? And if you ask people to rate their partner's personality, how happy their partner is, how committed their partner is, what their partner wants to do in their life, their partner's goals and dreams, they're not right if you compare it side by side with what the partner said they were like and what they did. Uh, so it is true that in general... We don't objectively know the people around us, the, the close others around us, and we especially don't know things that tend to be core values and beliefs until we directly ask them of other people. And it's pretty easy and common to not ask people about their core beliefs and just cross your fingers and hope that they feel the same way that you do. So, uh, But it is true at the same time that people feel similar to their partners. In general, they feel like they're becoming more similar and... At the impetus of the study, what we're trying to grapple with here is that everyone thought that we became more similar to our partners across time. And so where we ended in the study is not to say, no, nah, look, everyone's just different and we're doing different things, is is to say, okay, if you compare the actual objective measures, we're not becoming more similar. But there is a different thing that's happening in our relationships as well. It's where scientists <laughs> get, can go away and go, do you feel like you're becoming more similar? And do you become more similar to what you think your partner is and and that's an interesting process that's quite different to uh, are you holding the same beliefs on paper and when it comes to the success the success of that relationship is that perception more important than the scientific objective truth absolutely every single relationship is more about the perception and mm. if, if you if you fully believe you're happy then that's what you are, and even yeah. from the outside. And there are a lot of relationships I know of that I'm talking with people where they're like, from the outside, this relationship is extremely annoying, and I hate it, and I <laughs> wish it would stop. They kiss too much. Uh, but from the inside, that's the best thing ever, right? And and so I guess uh, if if we're being fully fair psychologically, both of those things are true. It's the best relationship and the worst relationship, fully depending on who the perceiver is. I came across this phrase in the study. Can you please explain what romantic interdependence is? Yeah. Romantic interdependence is a really important concept in relationship science. Uh, interdependence more generally describes the fact that human beings are not independent. If you are around someone who you're close to and they are very happy, guess what you are? Happy? You're happy. You're a little bit more happy than you were if you were not around them. Mm. So this is a really interesting challenge psychologically when researchers are coming along and we want to know things about people. If I want to ask you how happy you are, part of your answer is not actually how happy you are. It's how happy you are because of the other people around you. So it's more about how happy they are. Mm. So when we're doing these kinds of studies, we can't just ask a single person what they believe, because their beliefs are made up of the beliefs of other people around them, and how they feel is made up of 
their relationships with the people around them. So romantic interdependence describes the fact that when you're in a relationship, there is going to be fundamental things that are the same because they've been influenced by the same thing. They've come from the same place. So if you walk home and your kitchen is flooded because the dishwasher's exploded and you're both grumpy, that's an experience that you're sharing. There is interdependence in what caused it. And then when you're both grumpy and you both turn at each other and you both blame the other person, you are magnifying that grumpiness and it's magnifying because it's magnifying. And yeah. so you get uh, what would be a really messy thing to measure if you were just trying to be like a, a pure physicist and say, let's isolate every single thing in this experiment. Just take this person out of their entire situation and put them in a completely white box and study their behavior. We wouldn't be able to study their behavior anymore because their behavior wouldn't be real. There'd be nothing to study because you've taken them away from every single person. This is one of the, the fun challenges of psychology is how do you even study some of these things when there are so many influences? Yeah. Um, with all of this studying and sciencing and analysing you've done, um, how has it impacted your own life and your own, I guess, romantic experiences? Do you, like, do you find yourself having your scientist brain on? Or are you, like, are you able to switch that up? Or is that always something that's happening? I have no idea. And part of this is, it's, it's the question I get the most, is when you study this, do you just go home and, and have fights, but you're reading from a textbook? <laughs> my, my typical answer is this, is medical doctors still get sick, right? Like, just because you know about medicine, it doesn't prevent you from being sick. When you're sick, you're probably just a lot more annoying to deal with because you know all of the terminology. And I think that's probably true for relationship scientists as well, is they're probably just much more annoying to deal with because they know all the terminology. Uh, in reality, I think I became a psychology researcher because I was already like that. I, I don't think <laughs> psychology made me you just built that really <laughs> care about relationships. And I think I'm like, that's probably why I loved psychology is because that's the kind of thing I wanted to learn about and know more about. So um, uh, two chicken and eggy of an answer to, to, to know for sure. Okay, well... If you do know all of the terminology, um, I think that this is something that I've particularly seen a lot of conversation on social media about, where people are learning all of this new lingo, they're learning all of these new terms and definitions, um, and they're going so far that they're intellectualizing their emotions so much that they're actually kind of not able to engage with experiencing the emotion because they're intellectualizing it too much does it even get to that point where you're like i know too much about love and it's not like i'm too in my head <laughs> thankfully uh when you fall in love your brain gets flushed with so many hormones you don't care anymore <laughs> i think uh yeah i i we uh, this is a yeah, talking about interdependence this is a question you need to ask my family and friends and <laughs> and other people in my life about I think more than me because they'll give you a much better answer of of, uh, of what it is but uh, I think everyone is emotional and intellectual at the same time and I it's interesting to think about things swapping modes um, but I think if you're being super intellectual at the cost of trying to suppress all those emotions that's just a different way of being emotional. <laughs> <laughs> It's not not emotional, right? When you're trying to be like, well, I'm, I'm totally fine. That's not 
uh, absence of emotion. That's a very specific, interesting display of emotion. Um, the first one of my wholesome questions is a question that you clearly said at the start. That was that was a really hard question, but I'm going to ask you, what is love? Not as a scientist, as a human, to you personally, what is love? Oh, but you can't separate a scientist from a human. I'll give you the answer from, from both at once. Love is the most important thing in the world. Excellent. Um, my second question <laughs> is, if you, as a relationship scientist, if you were going to describe a happy and healthy and flourishing romantic relationship, do you have, like, like what are three words you would use to describe the best romantic relationship? Empathetic, responsive, there you go, there's psych jargon <laughs> that you can learn today. Uh, one more. I think the empathetic and responsive covers a lot. Yeah. Fun. <laughs> we love fun. God, I was really hoping you were going to say that. Excellent. Um, and my last question is if whoever is watching or listening to this, if they have a significant other of some variety, um, what's one thing that they could do for them or with them to kind of better their relationship? Oh, I'm not a counsellor. I don't know. I'm not going to tell people how to live their lives. <laughs> I, I sit in a room and I think about relationships for eight hours and I write long pieces of information. So I'm probably the last person needed to ask that information. If someone is distressed and stressed out, uh, awesome to see a therapist. Uh, and if you're not distressed and stressed out, you're doing a great job. Get on you. It's, it can be hard sometimes. So, like, thumbs up from me. Excellent. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's pretty much us. Do you want to say is that... thank you? Yes, excellent. Um, okay. I Yeah, I think that's pretty much us. Thank you so much for making the time. I really, really appreciate this. Um, I am both here to, like, help other people think academically about love, but also just because I have many personal questions. So this is... Really, me being here is very self-centered of me, um, and I've learned a lot. So I really appreciate you making the time. Thank you. It's been fun. Yay! You can look us up on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, YouTube, wherever it is that you do scroll your life away. And if you want to see more of me, you can head to Instagram at Goddess by Night.